Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to be reading the whole of this chapter and um, it would be helpful if we had the time to read the first chapter as well. But uh, we won't be able to do that, but I'll give you a little bit of a recap of what's in that first chapter before we actually start to look in detail at the second chapter. But we'll start to read Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1. And it came about in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine, that's Nehemiah, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. But I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favour before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, that little phrase there always makes me wonder who was really in charge. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, holding her rolling pin, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. And when Sembalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again, and returned. And the officials did not know where I'd gone, or what I'd done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, all the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate, and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favourable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official, Geshem the Arab, heard it, they mocked us and despised us, and said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Let's pray, please. Father, we very deliberately open our hearts and our minds to you today. 
You've said, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We pray, Lord, help us to hear the word that is proceeding out of your mouth today so that we might be a people who live and walk in the Spirit of God, who are obeying your word and who are discovering the fullness of your purposes day by day. Lord, we pray with all our hearts that we should not miss one jot of what you have for us in these days, but that we will do all that you have called us to do. Everything that you had in your heart when you gathered us individually and subsequently as you gathered us as the people of God in this place. We ask you that it all might come to fruition, that it all might be completed in your timing, Lord. And we ask today, help us to learn from you, to hear your word. Help us to have hearts of flesh, Lord, that will easily respond what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. It's always a bit tricky when you move around to a different congregation. I usually try and preach uh, in series, and uh, so that means you have to break in somewhere and uh, try not to preach the whole series in one sermon and just get one thing across. This is the second, and that's as far as I've got, of a series on Nehemiah. The uh, rest of the congregations, apart from Central Brighton, are all preaching on the church, and uh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm just doing it a slightly different way to everybody else. But it does help when you move to other congregations, because it means you've got something to preach that they haven't already heard. So we're going to look at Nehemiah. We've, uh, just in subsequent recent days, Terry uh, spoke at the town hall and showed how these passages about the restoration of the temple and the restoration of the city were such an important picture for us as a church. And uh, obviously that's something Terry spent a lot of time on, preached on it at Dan's, written a book about it. It makes it a lot easier to prepare when somebody's written a book about things. And uh, so you might recognize a few things that I say today. But we need to take heed, very great heed to the lessons that we have in these passages because it is such a parallel of what God is wanting to do with the church today. Just to recap on what happened in the first chapter, we find that Nehemiah is faced with a great personal challenge. He inquires about the state of the people who have left the captivity in Babylon. He inquires about them. How are they doing? How are they getting on? He not only inquires about the people, but he says, what's the city like? Has the city been rebuilt yet? There was actually some good news. It's not recorded there. But the good news was that the temple had been rebuilt. Worship, if you like, had been restored amongst this remnant that had gone back out of captivity. But the news was still sad. Uh, There was some good worship. Yes, the glory of God had come back into the temple. Yes, but we find Nehemiah broken-hearted at the news that he hears. Yes, the temple is built, but the people are still in disarray. The people are desolate and they are despairing. That's the news that Nehemiah hears. And we we find that Nehemiah has a very deep reaction, a, a heartfelt reaction, an overwhelming reaction to this news. We read in the uh, fourth verse, it came about when I heard these words, that I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And we need to realise that although although there's been lots of emphasis on worship, and we have good worship times, and uh, in lots of places where where there has been a certain amount of renewal in the church, and maybe the songs that we sing have changed, That is still not all that God wants to do today. He wants to rebuild his church in its entirety so that it's a secure place for the people of God. So it's not only a secure place for the people of God with rule within, but that it has influence outside of itself as well. That's what a city was like in these Old Testament times. 
And Nehemiah, you would have expected him to rejoice. The temple's restored. The glory of God's back. But when he heard that the city wasn't built, he was brokenhearted. And he wept. And he mourned. And he fasted. And I'd really encourage you to look at that prayer again. He cries out, Lord, hear me. Hear me, Lord. Be attentive to my prayer. He was a serious man of God. He learnt about the state of the, the church, let's say, because it's so clear as you look through Scripture that this is a parallel with the church. He learnt about the state of the city. He learnt about the state of the church. And he cried, Hear me, O God. And then he starts to call on God in, in what seems to be quite a presumptive way. He said, Look, Lord, they're your people. You said you'd do this. You said you'd do that. He brings the word of God back to, back to himself. He says, Look, Lord, they're your people. Now, will you do something about it? Will you give me success? And I want to challenge you right first and foremost this morning. Do you have such a burden for God's church that it will cause you to mourn and fast and pray? Because as, as Terry says in his book, until we weep over the ruins, we will never see the church built. And... Uh, we need to be ever so careful that we don't get into some kind of comfortable position and think, well, things are going okay here. God's blessing us. But we're part of a much bigger family. We're, we're part of a much bigger family than just existing Clarendon Church. We're part of a much bigger family in the whole Brighton area. Many, many more born-again believers. Throughout the nation, we're part of a much bigger family of people who call upon the Lord Jesus and call him Saviour and Lord. And we need to look at this church in this nation and say, Lord, honestly, it is in ruins. Honestly, it's in ruins. Honestly, it's desolate. Be realistic about it, just as Nehemiah was. Walked around the cities, had a look at it. What state is it in? What state is the church in? Let us not become complacent about the church. Not even here at Clarendon. Let's be people whose hearts will be open to receive the burden of God for his church. People who will weep and mourn and pray. Recently, as elders, we've definitely felt God saying, you must be at prayer. You've got to be at prayer. I encourage you, be here to pray tonight. We may have a, a tag as a restoration church. Uh, people may look on us and feel that we're a church going on. I tell you, we have not started. We haven't started, folks. There is so much more that God wants to accomplish and do. Not just within us, but throughout this whole nation. And the only way it is going to come about, it's not by clever formulas, it's not about doctrines, it's about the people of God coming to him with a deep burden of prayer and calling on him and saying, look, Lord, this is your church. We've been, you've been learning recently here that it's a church that the Lord Jesus loves with all his heart. This is his church. We can come boldly before him and say, look, Lord, these are your people. When are you going to do something about the state of the nation, the state of the church? Do you know what I think he would say back? He said, I'll do something about it when I find a people at prayer. Okay, that's your introduction. That's the whole of my first message <laughs> on Nehemiah 1, and now on to message 2. What I want to look at is uh, to look at a little bit more at Nehemiah now and see how he went on from receiving this burden uh, to see the city restored how did he go on from there? We just need to come in at the end of the first chapter to look at that little phrase there to get a better picture of this man. Just a little phrase that's popped in. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. I was cupbearer to the king. And the uh, first point I want to make is how important it is for us to recognize the placing of God's servant. It's just a little phrase popped in there. I was cupbearer to the king. I wonder if Nehemiah even gave it a second thought when he was in cap captivity and he was looking through the jobs pages of the evening paper and he was thinking, oh, what shall I do I'm in captivity? I haven't got the same jobs I used to have. What can I? Oh, cupbearer looks like a pretty decent post. 
I'll, I'll apply for cupbearer. And uh, I wonder if he ever gave it a second thought that God was at work. But we now find, as we have this passage opened up to us, that it was a significant move for Nehemiah, that he finds himself with the ear of the king. The cupbearer, we can just think of him as a servant. Actually, he was an important official in the king's palace. He had regular access to the king. And it was an important place that God had put him into. I want us to learn to think this way, that where God puts us always has purpose. He always has something to do. We can easily despise the position God puts us in, We can easily be indifferent to where we are, whether we're we're a housewife, whether we're in uh, a director of a company, whether we sweep roads, whether we're teachers, whether we're in college, whatever we do, we can so easily brush aside, think this is not important in the purposes of God. But we find here with Nehemiah, God specifically placing him and saying, that is important for you to be there in the purposes of God and it's later revealed. Nehemiah is in the right place at the right time for the sake of the kingdom of God. And we should think in those terms. Not just am I in the right place at the right time for me, not am I in the right place at the right time for my income, but am I where I am? Am I alive to the purposes of God in the place where I am now? Am I aware of what it is he might be seeking to do with me? Am I aware that my times are in his hands? In Esther 4.14, when Mordecai is speaking to Esther, he says, who knows if you've not attained royalty for such a time as this? God had brought her into that place at the right time, into the right position for the sake of the people of God. I encourage you not to write off where you are, where God has placed you, the house you live in, in that particular street. Many of us could look back and think about how we got that place, how we came to be living there, how we got into that office. And we think, come to think of it, it was a bit weird how it all worked out. Maybe it's God. Maybe he's got you there for a certain reason. Don't despise your skills. Don't despise your history. Don't despise the way you have come through life. It may well be the purposes of God. And you may not see it all yet, but God is planning and he's plotting. Sometimes he lets things go wrong just to get us into the right place. We feel we're ready to go. Come on, Lord, I'm ready to go. And we go whack into this big hand of God. And he says, no, not yet. No further. It is not my time. For others of us, we find ourselves in a backwater one day. The next day, we're doing some big things for God. And we think, this is wonderful. And God's all the time working with us, getting us into the right place at the right time. Whichever way it is working for you, whether God is pushing you forward or whether he's holding you back, realize this. Psalm 31, verse 14 and 15. You are my God and my times are in your hand. That's what Nehemiah discovered, that he was in the right place at the right time. I wonder whether Nehemiah, when he first saw the first remnant going back, because people had gone on earlier to restore the temple under Zerubbabel and Ezra. I wonder whether... This is obviously a man with a heart for his people. He loved his people. And uh, these people were going back. And they were going to rebuild the temple. I don't know all of Nehemiah's history. But I wonder if he must have been aching. Oh, God, please let me go with them. Please let me... Is this my time? But obviously it wasn't his time. I say, no, not yet, Nehemiah. I've got a far greater work for you to do that will release my purposes all over again. Some people go off with initial spurts, and that's great. But often what happens to initial spurts is that they die out. 
And it needs somebody else with a fresh burden, with fresh vision to come along and say, come on folks, let's get on with the job again. And I feel in my heart today that, that, that that's what God is almost saying to us as a church. Come on, you've done well. You've been going on well. You've done a good job. Lots of things have been accomplished. But there's more to do. There's far more to accomplish. And we need people with a fresh burden in their hearts for the church of God who will say, I'll stir you up and I'll stir you up. You used to be so alive. You you used to be so with us. What's happened? What happened to the people who initially went out to build the temple was that they started getting interested in their own houses. They built the temple, great. God was calling them to build the city, but they got interested in building their own little houses. Says my 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 family, my 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 business, my work, my my hobbies. It's uh, such a challenge to go on again. God's saying to us, "Come on, folks, are you going to bear the cost of carrying this burden through?" And Nehemiah was God's man for the task. God even holds Nehemiah up again. It doesn't all happen instantly for him. And we find that God has not only placed his servant in the right time, in the right, in the right position, but he also takes time to prepare his servant. At the beginning of chapter 1, we read that uh, Nehemiah asked his question, in the month Chislev, and then the beginning of chapter 2, is the month Nisan. That's a four-month period. There's obviously been a man before God, waiting again for God's timing. He knew that the only way he could do anything about the problem, the only way he could get to support his people, was by being released from the king's service. And yet he's a man at prayer still. He didn't rush right into the king saying, Sorry king, no more cup-bearing, I'm off. He stayed in prayer. He waited on God. God continued to prepare him until he brought about the time when he could speak to the king. When God prepares us, it is usually in obscurity. It is usually in obscurity. The people who Nehemiah was so burdened about didn't even know he existed. If you'd have said, Nehemiah's got a great burden, they'd have said, Nehemiah who? Nehemiah, so what? Nehemiah's got a great burden. It didn't mean anything to the people he would eventually lead and minister to. He was being prepared in total obscurity. Nobody knew about him. That's one of the things that's so hard when we receive a burden. We feel we've got to tell everybody about us and we, about it and we can't understand why they don't all follow all at once. The reason is because God has to do something to us first. We presume that when we hear and receive the burden of God, that we are ready to do something with it. But actually, it is usually just the beginning of the tests that God wants to bring to our lives to prepare us for the work that he's going to do. Not only is the testing and the preparation usually in obscurity, it's usually in the ordinary. It's usually in the ordinary. Alan Redpath, in his uh, book about this passage, said that God has sent every one of us to be exceptional in the ordinary. Exceptional in the ordinary. Sometimes we find it very hard to relate what I do day by day to the purposes of God. But actually God has said, I'm testing you, I'm preparing you, I'm making you into the person I want you to be through the ordinary. I'm seeing if you will be faithful in the little things. I'm seeing if you'll be faithful with things like money. I'm seeing if you will be faithful with things like something somebody has lent to you. Do you look after it? Do you, do you prize it? Do you carefully use it when you borrow something? And uh, we think, oh, what's this got to do with the purposes of God? But God's looking down and saying, if you're faithful in little things, 
you will be faithful in much. It's a spiritual law. If you're faithful in the ordinary things. Husbands, if you are faithful helping your wife in the house. You say, this, is this the purpose of God? God's saying, yes, it is the purpose of God. Because I test you in little things. I test you in ordinary things. Nehemiah did not become a bad cupbearer when he had this burden on his heart. We find in this chapter, he had not been sad in the king's presence. Suddenly it started to show. But for four months he had not been sad in the king's presence. He had a terrific burden upon him. He understood the purposes of God and yet he served faithfully day after day after day doing his job properly. The job that he was called to do. And uh, God prepares us in the same way. God sends problems along. God sends them. Don't blame the devil for all your problems. I know who sent the lion to attack David's sheep on the hillside one day. It was God who sent it. Because God was saying, this is David. Now I know what I've got in my heart for David. I know that I want him to be a mighty king of Israel. So I'll send him a lion to deal with. He's just got a few sheep there. And I'm going to test him with a few sheep who it wouldn't really matter if they got turned into lamb chops I'm going to test him with a few sheep and if he will protect those few sheep, I know that he will be a man after my own heart. And David could have so easily run away from that problem. Do you think that his father would have been angry with him? He said, look, sorry, Dad, there aren't quite as many sheep as there used to be, but this lion came. <laughs> That's okay, David, I'm, I'm glad that you're here and we've lost a few sheep. David didn't run away from his problem. He didn't run away from his responsibility. He faced the test and God knew that he had a man after his own heart. I want to ask you, are you struggling with some situation, are you struggling with some problem today that you are tempted to run away from? And you're trying to say this is the devil, you're trying to blame it on all sorts of people, when actually God is saying, look, this is a time of preparation. This is a time of testing. And if you're going to press on in my purposes, and if you are going to discover more of what I have for you, this is something you have to face and deal with. So God tests us and moulds us through the ordinary things. He prepares us in very simple things, in very small things. It amazes me the humility of the Lord Jesus. This is the mighty Son of God, the Lord of glory, through whom the world was created. And where do we find him? We find him in his Father's workshop, making tables making yoke for the neck of oxen. This is the Lord of glory. And he's there, being prepared, learning obedience. It amazes me. Sometimes I feel so frustrated. Why doesn't God give me more to do? Why doesn't God give me great things to do? Why haven't I got this ministry? Why haven't I got that ministry? And then I look at Jesus, and I find that the mighty, great Son of God was prepared to spend years and years and years in preparation until it was the right time for him to do what he had to do. The wonderful thing about the life of Jesus is that although he only had three years of intense ministry, he got to the end of those three years and said, I have done everything that you intended me to do. And that's the most important thing about whatever the Lord has called us to do in this life. It, it isn't whether I had a call 30 years ago and nothing has happened yet. The important thing is that I get to the end and I'm able to say, I've done everything you called me to do. It doesn't matter when it starts, it doesn't matter when it finishes, as long as it all gets done. 
You read of people in times of revival, ministers brought to great public awareness, doing great things, six months later, you can't hear about them anymore. It's as though God gets hold of an instrument, uses it, says, now, this is the time, this is the work, do it, complete it. And all the rest is preparation, painstaking, changing us, preparing us, making us ready, so that when he does use us, we will be a powerful instrument in his hand. So Nehemiah is placed in the right place at the right time. He is prepared by God for the ministry that he has to do. And next I want us to see the challenge that comes to Nehemiah. We've looked at the placing of God's servant, the preparation of God's servant, and now the challenge of God's servant. Nehemiah had been waiting for these four months, really, for this time. It says at the end of verse 1, Now I had not been sad in the king's presence. Verse 2, The king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This was the moment of truth. We think, uh, looking a bit grumpy in the office, it's not exactly serious these days. For the cupbearer of the king to appear sad in his presence was punishable by death. We think things are a bit strict sometimes. This is pretty strict, isn't it? You don't go with a smile on your face, off with his head. It was punishable by death for him even to show the sadness that was in his heart. Nehemiah knew the cost of carrying through the burden that God had given to him. To be sad was an unforgivable sin. I love Nehemiah's humanity. He'd been praying for four months. He'd been weeping before God. He'd been calling upon God. And when the moment of truth comes, it says at the end of verse 2, I was very much afraid. I really like this guy, because I'm like that. Pray my heart out and I'm still scared stiff. Pray before I preach, I prepare like mad, still got collie wobbles. You're going to go and evangelise, you pray up a storm, and it's great, and you're praising God, step out the front door onto the street. (laughs) And Nehemiah's like that. We think he's a great man of God, chapter 1, really praying. And then when the king speaks to him, he's like, I was very much afraid. Sometimes we make these these Old Testament saints such big guys as if we could never be like them. This guy is just like us. Prayed, but still afraid. Why is he afraid? Well, because he is literally risking his life for the sake of the kingdom. That's why he's afraid. The challenge for Nehemiah is that if I open my mouth and tell the king what is on my heart, I may be executed. That is the challenge for Nehemiah. Actually risking his life for the sake of this burden, for the sake of this kingdom. He was going to open his mouth and have to say, I want to go and help these Jews. Now these Jews in previous years had always been seen as being in direct rebellion to the authority of the king. So here's the cupbearer to the king. For starters, he's miserable in the king's presence. That's bad enough. And now he's going to say to the king, actually, I want to go and help the people that you consider usually rebel against you. That is not the way to win friends and influence people, is it? I want to help the people that have previously been seen to rebel. I'm already sad. Now I want to help them. I want us to realise today that if we are going to persevere with the burden that God has put on many of our hearts, it means life-changing upheaval. It means the very deepest challenge that in the end it might even literally cost us our lives. But today, it at least costs us our lifestyle 
It costs us our preferences. It costs us our comforts. It's going to cost us our time. It's going to cost us our money. Receiving this burden is the first step. We say, Lord, will you please so get hold of my heart that I will begin to feel about the church what you feel about the church. Will you let it break my heart, Lord, so that I can pray your mighty promises back to you? The second part of it is to realise that the cost of carrying through the burden is very, very high. It could mean that I've got to move house so that I can serve the people of God. When I spoke about this at Central Brighton, somebody came to me afterwards who was just on the borderline between two congregations and said, I really want to be here, really want to be with you, lots of my friends are here. But I talked with the elder of the other congregation before and he'd said to me, we could so use that person. We so need somebody like that. And she came to me at the end after I'd preached this and said, I really want to be here and so on. And I said, we really feel you should be there. She said, cool. This is what you've been preaching about, isn't it? It was costly to her. It had been much more comfortable for her to come to us in Central Brighton. Her friends are there. The people that she is like are there. But we said, no, please go here because you can serve the people of God. That's what it is about, to carry through the burden. To say, yes, I believe in this glorious church we've been hearing about. I believe in it. I believe it's right, all that John's been preaching. Yes, amen. Will you move? Will you not take that promotion at work so that you will have more free time to serve the people of God? Will you give up your preferences? Will you give up your time? Will you do things that are inconvenient to you for the sake of the purposes of God? Because this was the Nehemiah's challenge. If I'm going to go on, Nehemiah's choice was, I now have to risk my life. I have to count my life as nothing if I'm going to go on with this burden. I find one song that we sing very difficult to sing. It's about serving the purposes of God. It has a line in it, I want to give my life for something that will last forever. And if we're going to be involved with something that is going to last forever, we have to stop playing at it and realise that it is going to cost us our lives. Maybe literally but at least in terms of giving up my self-indulgence, at least in terms of giving up my complacency, at least in terms of giving up my indifference, it is going to cost me my life. God has called us to be a radical people. And I'm fearful that we will seek to be a radical people. That, that we will cease to be a radical people. The people who first went out, the remnant that first went out from captivity, they were radical in their day. They were the ones that pressed forward in their day. Years and years ago before Nehemiah, they were the ones that were pressing forward. They were the ones that were showing the way. They were saying, I'm going to come out of the comfort of Babylon. I'm going to leave my business behind. We're going to leave what we found there so so comfortable and a nice lifestyle. We're going to leave it behind. Many stayed. But these people who went out to build the temple, they were radical. They counted the cost. But a few years later, we find them no longer counting the cost. We find them comfortable and complacent and in total disarray as a people. We could become like that if we don't remain a radical people willing to bear the cost of carrying through this burden. We sing songs like, I want to give my life for something that will last forever. And then somebody says, will you give that hobby up? Oh, yeah, well, that's, that doesn't really take, that's not really, no, no, I couldn't, couldn't give that hobby. 
I want to give my life for something that... Will you give up that boyfriend? Uh, no. Um, I want to give my life for something that lasts forever. Will you forget that your favourite TV programme is on a Sunday night and be at the prayer meeting? Um, I, f I find it challenging to sing that song. I want to give my life, my life, everything for something that will last forever. And if we are going to see the persistent blessing of God, he's looking for a people who will give their lives something that will last forever. And if we miss the way, if we miss the blessing of God, if we miss all that God has promised for us here, it won't be because we haven't heard the word of God. It will be because of our own indifference. It will be because we haven't taken seriously enough everything God has said to us. And uh, I really assure you, I'm preaching this to myself. And I don't, I'm not trying to hit you over the head this morning. I'm trying to say, come on, folks if we're going to carry it through, if we're going to complete the work that God has given us to do, we're going to have to get serious about it. And I think we've got to recognise a principle here that happened with the stages of building with this, in this restoration period, that there are spurts and it dies down. And there's good work done, but it, it dies and it's still not complete. And we've got to lift up again and say, right, we're going again. And lift up again and go again. I pray that God will keep bringing people to us or keep challenging us and say, are you really pressing on? Are you as radical as you once were? Let me ask you, are you somebody who once took steps of costly obedience, but you don't anymore? Many of you left churches in pain because of the purposes of God. Many of you have done other things that have really cost you because of the purposes of God. Do you know, I find myself praying, I was praying this morning before this, Lord, make me more radical. Lord, make me more different from the people around me. Lord, put more of your power into my life. Lord, let your spirit be more powerfully upon me. Lord, let me be a better husband. Lord, let me be more serious about your work than I have ever been in my life before. Ever. I want to be more radical than I have ever been. And I want to ask you the same question today. Are you sitting back? Are you comfortable where you are? Or are you saying to God, make me more radical? Can you look back to days when God spoke to you and you were on fire for him? But now as you look at yourself today, you know that is not the truth. You say, but I used to be so much more lively then. That is not the will of God for us. The will of God for every one of us is that we should be full of the zeal of the Lord of hosts. Say, Lord, make me more enthusiastic. Make me more abandoned with joy in your presence. Let me be a more of a worshipper than I've ever been. Let me be on my knees in your presence more with tears streaming down my face because I love Jesus so much. Do I sound fanatical? I want to be a fanatic. Lord, make me a fanatic. I really want to be one because I don't consider myself to be one. I know there are times when I fudge issues, when God says, speak to somebody and I don't speak to them. And God says, prophesy and I don't prophesy. When God says, change in an area and I don't change. That's Nehemiah. If it costs us our lives, we're going to carry this burden through. Galatians 6.9 says that we're not to become weary of doing good. I want to speak to the weary ones today. The Word of God says, don't become weary of doing good because in due time, you will receive your reward. Don't get weary, folks. Many of you have been here a long time. Don't get weary. Keep pressing on. 
1 Thessalonians 4.1, Paul commends the Thessalonians that they've pressed on in the instruction that he's given them. He says, you are doing what I've told you to do. And then he says, excel still more. Excel still more. 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 Lord, I do this, I do that. Well, do it more. I love the people. Well, love them more. I encourage people. Encourage them more. I prophesy. Prophesy more. I pray with the sick. Pray with them more. I witness. Do it more. I serve. Do it some more. I love my wife. Love her more. I love my husband. Love him more. I do my job well. Do it better. I give. Give more. We're talking about radical Christianity that examines the very roots of our motivation and says, am I really sold out for God or not? And this challenge is coming so deeply to me because I know in many ways I am not sold out for God. How long have I been going? Good grief. Okay. Let me just say that I think that this kind of challenge will always remain irksome to us unless we have experienced dealings with God in private. And by that I mean unless I have had a confrontation with the cross of Jesus that has truly had an impact upon my life. To talk about all these things would just be an absolute pain to me. But when I look at the cross of Christ and I see that he died for me, that he gave up everything for me, then I want to be like him. Say, Lord, you laid down your life for me. That's the end of all arguments against laying down my life for the people of God and for his purposes. Say, you laid your life down for me, Lord. What other option do I have but to lay my life down for you? We must have a confrontation with the cross of Christ. We must experience God's dealing with us in private. And I would say if you're struggling even today with what I'm saying, if you're struggling about your commitment to the church, then I say the question is not your commitment to the church. Your question, first and foremost, is your commitment to Christ. Because our commitment to Christ demands our lives. And commitment to the church could never demand more than that. That's the principal thing. Am I truly committed to Christ? Christ's expectation was that we laid down our lives every day, that we take up our cross daily and follow him, that we lay aside our self-motivation every day. There's no greater commitment than that. There's no greater challenge than that. We must be confronted with the cross. Uh, Number four, we now come to the confidence of God's servant. We've seen the challenge of God's servant the confidence of God's servant. Find him coming to the king, asking for exactly what he wants. The king says to him, what would you request? And again, although we see Nehemiah growing in confidence and growing in stature all the time, he still remains humble. The king says, well, he doesn't say, off with your head. He says, what would you request? And it's just noted there. So I prayed to the God of heaven. It's great, isn't it? I I love this man so much. He's he's scared stiff, but then when he gets his opening, you think he's going to rush in like a bull in a china shop, but no, he says, okay, here goes, Lord, help. And he really goes for it. He asks for exactly what it is that he wants from God. The danger for us sometimes is that when things start opening up for us, when God just begins to use us, that our heads swell a little bit, that we get overconfident, that we feel that every word that falls from our lips is the word of God for the situation. But it's not like that with Nehemiah. He remains humble and prays to God even when he gets his opening. He's been dependent on God for four months in prayer and he remains dependent on God. 
full of confidence and yet humble. And we find that the king gives to Nehemiah everything that he requests. And at the end of verse 8, we see that Nehemiah attributes all these things to the good hand of God. He says, all these things have happened. The king granted me this, granted me that, and he gave me everything that I asked for. Praise be to the king. No. The good hand of God was on me. The good hand of God was on me. That's such an important knowledge for us to have. If we're going to press on with the burden that God's given us, it must not be in our own striving. It must not be of our own effort, not our own ideas. But we know that the good hand of God is resting upon us. We read in Revelation 3 and verse 7 that he's a God who opens doors and no one can shut them. He's a God who shuts doors and no one can open them. We need to realise this, whether the door is open or whether the door is shut, it's still the good hand of God that is upon us. We sometimes come up against a closed door and we think God has abandoned me. No, he's the one who shuts doors. It's still his good hand. You think, I've been trying to press on with God and I've run up against this and I've run up against that. And you think, I've been, I've been trying to go on in this burden, I've been trying to go on in these purposes, but these things have happened. Well, do we believe in the sovereign God or not? He's the God who opens doors and nobody can shut them. He's the God who shuts doors and no one can open them. But it is always the good hand of God. Nehemiah's experience was that although the king seemed to have done wonderful things, circumstances had changed miraculously for him. He recognised who was in charge of those circumstances. He said, it's God. The good hand of God. And if we're going to press on, we not only need to have private dealings with God, but this knowledge needs to be deeply embedded in our hearts. This I know. God is for me. Do you believe that for yourself today? That God is for you. I believe that the blessing that we have seen so far here is going to multiply and multiply and multiply because God has spoken and he is for us. I believe that with all my heart. If we stop believing, we will start to despair. We will start to feel, is there a way through? Is God's blessing ever going to come to me? The psalmist felt that. Psalm 27, I would have despaired unless I believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. If you've stopped believing today, if you've stopped expecting the blessing of God, you are on the road to despairing of ever receiving the blessing of God. But I believe with all my heart that God is for me, that God is for us. And I would start despairing unless I believed this, that we will see the blessing of God, the goodness of God in the land of the living. I think it's been reported that Lex has been wandering around the township over there in South Africa, kicking his feet in the dust saying, why isn't Brighton like this? Because they've been seeing some great things happen there. I tell you, I believe Brighton is going to be like that. When the deaf hear, when the lame walk, when the blind see, and we say tens and hundreds saved, it is going to be like that. Because we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Because this I know, God is for me. God's for us. And Nehemiah knew that. All these things had happened, all these things had eventually worked out, at least the first stage. And he says, it's the good hand of God. We need to have private dealings with God. We need to have this deep knowledge that God is for us. Then we see the composure of God's servant. We just go through these quickly now. The composure of God's servant. 
Nehemiah doesn't go shouting around about his burden. He's a man who knows how to control his spirit and let the word of God ferment in his heart. It says that he didn't tell anyone what God was putting in his mind or putting in his heart to do for Jerusalem, verse 12. He didn't tell anyone what God was putting into his heart to do for Jerusalem. There was something very important continuing to happen in the heart of Nehemiah. It wasn't that he just once received a burden way back then, but he received a burden, wrote a book about it, did some tapes. No, something was carrying on in his heart all the time. We read at the beginning of Ezra about the first people who returned, that the people who got involved was everyone whose heart God had stirred. Is your heart stirred today? Is your heart stirred up by God now? Not when you're on the commitment course. Not when you're at the Wimber Conference. Not when things are going great for you. But now is God stirring your heart. Is your heart open for all that God wants to put in it? It's got to be a continual thing happening. I've, I've found a in myself, a returning of God stirring me up. It's a, very, it's a biblical phrase. I used to think it was a bit weird, that one, you know, I feel stirred, you know. Sounds like a cup of tea or something, but it's a biblical phrase. God stirring me. He's stirring me. That means there's some kind of turbulence going on inside. Nehemiah didn't blurt it all out. Dealing is going on all the time. If we are going to remain radical, we need to have private dealings with God at the cross. We need to have this deep personal knowledge that God is for us. And we need to be continually, inwardly motivated. Yesterday's motivation, if I was greatly motivated three years ago, well that was good for then. But I need to be greatly motivated now if I'm going to press through with this burden. If I was greatly motivated at a Dan's Bible week when I heard Terry preach, that's good, but I need to be greatly motivated now. I need to know the stirrings of God now. I find myself praying, Lord, give me an open heart. The, the doors of my heart, Lord, are wide open for anything that you want to do. I want you to remove every hindrance. I want you to remove all reticence. I want to want you to remove every secret sin that will stop you accomplishing exactly what you want to accomplish with my life. Can I encourage you to pray that? Lord, my heart is open wide. Do whatever you want to do. And eventually Nehemiah brings this challenge to the people who are already there. And he places before them not uh, a nice glowing picture, but he places before them the facts. Verse 17, I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in. And, now Nehemiah it doesn't appear to me to be a marketing expert here. He's trying to get volunteers to build a ruined city. Now, I would have thought it would be much better. Do you remember when this city was great? Do you remember when it was wonderful? And, uh, you know, you can buy shares in this, and when we've got it rebuilt, it'll give you a great return. It says, you see the bad situation we're in. Could you imagine them trying to sell shares for the channel tunnel like this? Say, it probably won't work, it'll probably fall in, and... This man is so confident with what God is doing in him, so confident of what God wants to accomplish, that he is a total realist about what the situation is, and yet he's so full of faith that he can present it that way. This man is growing all the way through. He's growing in stature, and he presents the burden to the people. He doesn't pull any punches. He wants them to count the cost of what it means to follow through on this burden. That's what I want you to do today. 
I want you to count the cost of what it means to persevere in this church. I want you to think, am I really prepared to do what Chris has been talking about today? Am I prepared to count the cost? Am I prepared to bear the cost of what it means to persevere with this burden to see the church of God built? I would even suggest that if you do not feel you can, then you come and tell us. Because we want to be a people who are pressing on together. In Luke 14, there's the parable about counting the cost. And the instruction is that you first sit down and you calculate if you can finish. That's the important calculation. The important calculation is not whether I can respond to this message today. The important calculation isn't whether I can make it to Christmas or even get off to a good start in the new year. The important calculation is whether I'm still going to be on fire for God at the Dan's Bible Week. The important calculation is, am I going to finish? That's the only calculation that counts. I believe Terry knows that I am totally committed to him. That doesn't mean I believe he's infallible, but as far as God's led us so far, he knows I'm totally committed to him, that I'm going to the finish with him. I want to ask you today, are you here for the ride? Are you here for whilst it stays good? Are you here whilst you're happy? Or have you calculated to finish? Nehemiah was asking these people for a commitment to finish building this this city. He wasn't saying, uh, okay, 16 volunteers to build the foundations and then you can go. He was saying, look folks, this is a bad situation. The church in Brighton is only just starting to come to life again, really. The church in England and Wales and Scotland and elsewhere actually is still in a desperate situation. Are you committed with all of your heart by the grace of God to see that situation change, to see the walls go back up, to see the church come strong, to see the church become light and salt again in this nation? That's the only calculation that has to take place. Am I going to finish? Are you going to stay with us as a leadership? Are you going to press through to the end with us? Have you stated that? Have you ever said it to anybody? Whatever the cost, I'm going to see it through to the end. That's what Nehemiah had to do himself and that's what he called for the people to do. Whatever the cost, folks, see it through to the end. He built them up on faith. He said, verse 18, look and see how the hand of my God has been favourable to me wasn't pie in the sky, he could point to the evidence of the blessing of God. We can do that today. We can say God has done this and he's done that and look how he's moved these people around and changed circumstances and blessed us and been with us. We can point to the blessing of God and say, come with us. Come with us. Do this work. God is with us. And their response finally is let us Arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. We go from the deep challenge, deep personal challenge of Nehemiah to a wonderful camaraderie, a wonderful joining of hearts, saying, come on, let's get this job done together. Let's let's remember we're all on the same side. Let's remember that God has called us to this work together and said, okay, Nehemiah, get on with it then if you're so burdened. No, they they recognised the man that had the burden and the vision from God and they responded to it with all their hearts and even through fearful opposition in the future, they completed the work that God gave them to do. I really feel God is calling us today to arise again to the challenge and the cost of what it means to have a burden to build the church. 
It's a burden which we have started with well, but there is tremendous cost for us to follow it through. Let's pray.